0: Welcome to First News, all of you. I'm Zain Asher. Into my colleague Julia Tassley. Just ahead on today's show, Finnish Forum, U.S. President Joe Biden meeting in Helsinki with the leaders of five Nordic nations. Biden rather hailing Finland's entry to NATO, Sweden's bid to join the alliance, gaining traction as well. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is also talking to CNN about Ukraine's future In NATO. All of that and more, uh, all the very latest in just a moment. Plus, from reading lines to picket lines, thousands of TV and film actors are poised to go on strike as long-running contract talks break down. All of this as the Writers Guild continues its three-month walkout, the latest on Hollywood's worsening crisis just ahead. And Powell's Progress. U.S. investors hailing the latest encouraging news on inflation, a sign that the Fed's aggressive interest rate hiking campaign is working. Consumer inflation is at its lowest levels in more than uh, two years. Just minutes ago, a fresh look at wholesale inflation prices at the factory gate open, or rather, up only a tenth of a percent month over month in June, and that was less than expected. On Global markets, cooling inflation continues to give a boost to stocks. Look at all that green there. U.S. futures are in the green. The arrows pointing up after the highest close for the S&P 500 in well over a year. Europe on the advance as well after a strong Asian hand over the Hang Seng. Uh, the outperformer in Asia up more than 2.5%. Chinese tech stocks rallied amid new signs that Beijing's crackdown on tech is winding down. Whew, so much to get through this hour. I want to begin, though, in Finland. President Biden meeting with the leaders of the Nordic countries in Finland. By the way, that is the newest member of NATO. Uh, his visit, President Biden's visit, comes after a NATO summit where Turkey made a surprise U-turn, agreeing to support Sweden's bid to join the alliance. Following the NATO summit in Lithuania, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin sat down with CNN's Wolf Blitzer for an exclusive interview. I want you to listen to what he had to say.
1: From a military standpoint, Mr. Secretary, how close is Ukraine to meeting NATO standards?
2: Well, there are a number of things that uh, that uh, will, will have to be done. As you know, um, they uh, a, a big part of their inventory is uh, is legacy equipment, uh, and uh, and so in, in terms of training and equipping, there, there's work to be done. But we're doing that work as we're helping them uh, as they fight this war, uh, and so. Uh, Things have been done to, up to this point. There's more that will need to be done uh, to ensure that they have a full complement of capability. So.
1: so you have no doubt that after the war, Ukraine will become a member of NATO?
2: I, I have no doubt that that will happen. And uh, we heard uh, just about every uh, heard all of the countries in the room uh, say as much. And I think that was reassuring to, uh, to President Zelensky. Uh, but there are other things that have to happen as well. You know, uh, judicial reform, uh, um, you know, uh, things that uh, that uh, make sure that the democracy is in good shape. And so those things will take place over time. So.
1: How much time do you think it will take after the war? Let's assume the war ends. God willing, it will end someday. How much time will it take for NATO to join, for NATO to welcome Ukraine as a full member?
2: I, I won't speculate on that, Wolf. Well, I will just say that all the countries that, uh, that I've witnessed are, uh, are interested in moving as quickly as possible.
1: So you think all 31 members of NATO right now want Ukraine in?
2: I think uh, it'll be 32 by that time. But uh, Sweden. I, yeah, yeah, right. But I do believe that, uh, that everyone uh, wants, uh, wants Ukraine to be on board.
1: As I said, Sweden is now set to join NATO. Uh, how is, from your analysis, and, and you've got good uh, analysts, uh, how is Putin reacting to this expansion of NATO?
2: Well, I, I'm sure Putin's very concerned. You know, this is probably something that uh, he didn't expect to happen, although President Biden warned him of this uh, at the very beginning. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he's brought NATO closer to his doorstep. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you were him, you'd, you'd certainly be concerned about what, what you're seeing. Uh, but countries like Sweden and Finland bring a lot to the Alliance and we're, we're happy to have them on board. You know, I was just in Sweden a couple of weeks ago, I uh, got a chance to spend time with the Minister of Defense and, uh, and visit some of their troops, look at their capabilities. Uh, it, they will bring value to the, uh, to the Alliance right away. And it's a strong demarc- democracy, uh, Wolf, and that's, that's really a, uh, the most important point.
0: Wolf uh, Blitzer speaking to Lloyd Austin there. Right. There's going to be uh, a lot more of the interview with Secretary Austin on the Situation Room with uh, Wolf Blitzer, who you just saw there, at 6 p.m. Eastern time here in the U.S. In Russia, the military has fired one of the most senior officers involved in the war in Ukraine. The Army General says that he was dismissed after criticizing defense ministry leaders after the lack of support for Russian troops. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So Claire, as, as you well know, there is certainly no room for dissent in Russia, generally speaking. There certainly wasn't before the war, and there certainly is not now, especially given that failed rebellion with uh, Prigozhin Just walk us through uh, what the army general said.
3: Yeah, so this is Ivan Popov. He was the commander of the 58th Army. They were based in Berdyansk in Zaporizhia. Really, uh, he was running troops that were active along one of the most important parts of the Ukrainian counteroffensive down there uh, in Zaporizhia, where, of course, they're trying to cut through that Russian land bridge linking the Donbass and Crimea. The news of his firing came from an audio message that was posted by a Russian lawmaker, a member of Putin's party himself, uh, a former military man. Uh, And essentially, Papov says uh, that he decided to tell the truth to his commanders about what was happening on the ground. Take a listen.
0: Yeah, we do
4: I had no right to lie. Therefore, I outlined all the problematic issues that exist today in the army in terms of combat work and support. I called a spade a spade. I drew attention to the most important tragedy of modern warfare. This is the lack of counter-battery combat, the absence of artillery reconnaissance stations, and the mass deaths and injuries of our brothers from enemy artillery.
3: So we haven't been able to independently verify that audio and the Ministry of Defence have not responded to a request for comment. But certainly if his claims are true, if the troops are not being provided with enough support, that certainly adds weight to claims that have been coming out in the blogosphere uh, and other areas throughout this war of not enough equipment, not enough supplies. All of that, of course, culminated in that failed Wagner rebellion. If his firing uh, is true, Zane. That also adds to the picture of sort of infighting that we're getting in the Russian army, particularly again after that Wagner rebellion. And this has been uh, a pretty dramatic week for the sort of top ranks of the, of the Russian army. We have a former submarine commander gunned down while running uh, in the Russian city of Krasnoyarsk. There's a, uh, a uh, the Ukrainians are reporting that a Russian general was killed in Berdyansk. Also this week, the whereabouts of Sergei Sorovikin, the head of the uh, aerospace forces, is still unknown. He was said by a lawmaker this week uh, to be resting. So a pretty uncomfortable time overall to be in the top ranks of the Russian military. Right,
0: Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. And returning now to our top story, President Biden is in Finland on the final leg of his high stakes visit to Europe. Nick Robertson joins us live now. So Nick, I think symbolism is really important here uh, in Helsinki. President Biden is going to be showcasing NATO's newest member, Finland. But also it's it's worth noting that with Finland joining the alliance, that effectively doubles NATO's border with Russia. Just walk us through what the message is going to be here.
5: Yeah, it, it adds over 830 miles, something like 1,200 kilometres, a border with, with Russia going right up to, uh, up to the Arctic North, which is something that will get discussed at this meeting, you, being hosted by the Finnish president. You have the Norwegians there, the Icelandics are there. The Swedes are there. The Danish are there. This now represents with all of them, apart from Iceland, being members of NATO, this large Nordic bloc. They're talking about the interoperability now that they have of their security and defense forces that they didn't quite have before Sweden and Finland uh, were coming into NATO. Um, now they can operate uh, and have transfer of, 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 of equipment and operate as and tighten essentially their security. They bolster the security of the Baltic states as well, as far as NATO is concerned. This long border that na- that Russia now gets with the You know, doubled in length, as you were saying, this longer border that Russia now gets with um, with with NATO is not something that they were expecting, uh, and is going to be perceived. In Moscow, as a potential challenge, but at the moment, uh, Russia very much focused and bogged down in the war in Ukraine to really to really do anything significant there. There's been, uh, according to the Finns, no significant movement of Russian forces in that area along the border. Um, but there's a lot of other things that they're talking about in that meeting. Um, not only this unity of NATO, not only this military security interoperability that they now have, but they're talking about you know the the, the common issues of climate change. Uh, and how to deal with that of of AI technology, of of how to develop greener technologies. And it's kind of interesting listening to the different leaders there make their comments around the table because there's a common theme. We have these common issues to deal with, but they're all talking about it in ways that we might describe as what we'd expect from from Nordic countries in terms of looking after social cohesion and the welfare of citizens. So this seems to be a common thread around the table there as well. But it's the security dynamic, of course, that's on everyone's minds right now. And this high Arctic North with the climate change, the ice, the, the seas there being freer of ice, it becomes a more important military and economic sphere for Russia, for China um, and of course, for the Nordics and the United United States.
0: One other sort of highlight uh, in terms of President Biden being in Helsinki is that while he's in Finland, he's going to be meeting with uh, uh, the Swedish uh, Prime Minister as well. Just to explain to us. I mean, I think there is still some curiosity over the exact nature of the concessions that were offered to uh, uh, Turkey's President Erdogan in order to get him to support Sweden's bid. To join NATO. Just explain to us whether we will get any more color on that. I mean, there is curiosity. I'm certainly curious myself. What are your thoughts, Nick?
5: yeah I think I think we're all curious because we've seen the headlines as reported by NATO that and we know as well that Sweden changed its constitution and changed its laws um, so that it could crack down on the pKK that the, the Turkish authorities see as a terrorist group Kurd, a Kurdish group opposition group uh, in Turkey there also seems to be um, an agreement with Sweden. That it will also crack down on other opposition groups, uh, the Gulen group, as as Turkey calls them, and also the uh, PYK, a Syrian Kurdish group. So uh, there's that. There's the fact that Sweden has said it's committed to helping Turkey raise its voice to get into the European Union, which we heard Erdogan say a few days ago was super important to him still, um, and a commitment to sell defense weapons to to. Turkey, which Turkey has a big army. Um, they'll now be members of NATO. No reason not to, not to be able to sell, let's say, uh, Swedish fighter jets, the Gripen, which is something that, you know, is actually a highly sought after fighter aircraft on par. People talk about it on par with the F-16, which Turkey is trying to get upgrades for those from the United States. So, um, there's that dynamic. But again, as you say, the details in it, uh, we just don't know. Um, And uh, an improved economic cooperation has been discussed. I don't think we'll get that those on the readout from this particular uh, meeting that President Biden has with the Swedish Prime Minister Kristusson. But I I do think that over time, we we will see and it will become apparent what those concessions were.
0: All right. So we should all be patient. Nick Robertson live for us there. Thank you so much. A fresh high-level interaction between Washington and Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with China's top diplomat Wang Yi on the sidelines of the ASEAN foreign minister's meeting in Indonesia. Anna Koren has the latest.
6: U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's top diplomat Wang Yi on the sidelines of the ASEAN summit in Jakarta this evening. The media was allowed to film the two men and their delegations for less than a minute. No comments were made before the press was asked to leave. The meeting took place behind closed doors at the St Regis Hotel. You, Wang was not supposed to attend the summit in the Indonesian you, capital. Chinese Foreign Minister Gong was scheduled to represent China. However, he is ill. Just last month, Blinken and Wang met in Beijing, the first visit to China by a US Secretary of State in five years, with the aim to reset relations and communication between the US and China, which has been at an all-time low. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in Beijing last week. US climate envoy John Kerry will be flying there this weekend. While this diplomatic activity has raised hopes of improved relations, clearing the way for talks between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, revelations that Chinese hackers have breached email accounts of two dozen U.S. organizations, including some government agencies such as the State Department, has raised concern. Microsoft and the White House have confirmed the hack was a spying campaign aimed at sensitive information. Adding to tensions, US-led NATO issued a strongly worded communique at the end of their meeting this week, saying that China challenged its interests, security and values with its ambitious and coercive policies. Well, Beijing responded angrily, saying it's opposed to any attempt by the military alliance to expand its footprint into the Asia-Pacific region. Earlier, Wang met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on the sidelines of the summit, saying that China and Russia firmly support each other's legitimate interests. They will also support ASEAN centrality and be vigilant against interference by external forces. Wang also said that China and Russia will help ASEAN countries in grasping correct direction of East Asia cooperation. A strong indication that China and Russia are even closer as the Kremlin says that Russian leader Vladimir Putin is planning to visit Beijing in the near future. Anna Corin, CNN, Hong Kong.
0: Some of Hollywood's biggest stars may end up hitting the picket lines, along with writers who produce their scripts. Union leaders are expected to formally authorize a strike, putting pressure on major studios and streaming services as well. An attempt to reach an agreement ended last night without a deal. Natasha Chen joins us live now from Los Angeles. So, Natasha, the last time we saw actors go on strike, that was way back in the 1960s. Um, SAG Board's going to be meeting later today to um, issue a sort of final vote on whether or not to authorize a strike. We'll see what happens in about a couple of hours from now. But if you have a dual writer strike and an actor strike at the same time, just walk us through how that changes the landscape for the entertainment uh, business right now.
7: It is a huge ground shift, Zane. We're talking about a writer strike that has already stopped so many productions because the only things that really have been able to continue right now with shoots are uh, productions that already had a script locked in that don't require further writing work on those as they continue to be produced. But if you're talking about 160,000 members of an Actors Guild not working, then you really have way more productions grind to a halt. Now, the last writer's strike in 2008 lasted 100 days. Right now, the writers have been on the picket line for more than 70 days. And by noon Los Angeles time today, we could see the actors join them as well. Uh, the chief negotiating team for SAG-AFTRA sent a statement that said, in part, the studios and streamers have implemented massive unilateral changes in our industry's business model, while at the same time insisting on keeping our Contracts frozen in amber. The studios and streamers have underestimated our members' resolve as they are about to fully discover. Now, we've already seen a number of actors join writers on the picket line this week, anticipating what's about to come. Uh, They really have a unified sense of what they are fighting for, better wages, but also protections uh, regarding new technology like artificial intelligence that could really uh, take over some of the work that they currently do. Here's one of the actors talking about their struggle.
4: I think like people assume that, you know, writers in Hollywood or actors in Hollywood are all sort of wealthy and successful. And, you know, why should we need even more money than we're getting now? But what I don't think people realize is that there's a whole middle class of writers and actors that is disappearing because they're making it more and more difficult to just make a living
7: and the studios have said that they actually did create a groundbreaking offer with higher wages and protections with AI uh, they said in a statement in part that they're de- deeply disappointed that sag after has decided to walk away from negotiations this is the union's choice not ours rather than continuing to negotiate sag after has put us on a course that will deepen the financial hardship for thousands who depend on the industry for their livelihoods and we're not just talking about people who work on movie sets and and TV film sets. Uh, We're also talking about all of the businesses that feed and serve these productions in major film hubs around the world, Uh, specifically in the United States. We've already seen layoffs and hours cut back in restaurants and delis, dry cleaners, uh, makeup artists and set and prop warehouses. People I've talked to who uh, are so below the line, as they say in Hollywood, that they're even below the credits. And right now, they don't know how they're going to pay the bills, even as many of them tell me that they are supportive of the union thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, there has to be a
0: sort of fine line that's walked here. I mean, I thought that that sounded you played. Uh, with that actor on the picket line was a really important one because there are so many actors in Hollywood who are just starting out, who are not household names, who are not A-list celebrities, who are really struggling to get by. And you don't want that middle class of actors to disappear. That would be unfair as well. Natasha Chen, life for us there. Thank you so much. You. All right, still to come, Ukraine hails the latest American weaponry to arrive as a potential game changer. We'll take you to eastern Ukraine after the
3: break.
8: There is a lot to learn there some fascinating stuff and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop listen to chasing life wherever you get your podcasts
0: welcome back to first move ukrainian general says cluster munitions controversially supplied by the us have reached kiev the general told cnn they could completely transform the situation on the battlefield, but Ukraine has not deployed them just yet. Uh, CNN's Alexander Marquardt spoke with the general about the new weaponry. He joins us live now from Dnipro in eastern Ukraine. So cluster munitions, I mean, these have been a major talking point uh, this week and and last week when we first found out that the U.S. was going to be sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. They are incredibly controversial. Now they're in the country. Just explain to us how they could indeed be a game changer on the battlefield, especially given that this counteroffensive by Ukraine is off to such a slow start.
9: Yeah, Zane, you're absolutely right. Hugely controversial. You know, more than 100 countries banned their use and their production. Uh, the Ukraine and the US are, are not signatories uh, to that convention. And, but the U.S. has held out on giving Ukraine these cluster munitions because of how controversial they were, but then eventually decided to give them, they say, uh, because of shortage of more standard artillery. Uh, but now they are here in country, we're told. They have not yet been used. But uh, General Alexander uh, Tarnovsky, who we spoke with earlier today, said that they could have a rattle- radical effect on the battlefield, um, that, you- that Russian troops, he believes, will be afraid of them and, and could indeed vacate areas, uh, where they could be most effective. Now, according to the general, these cluster munitions will not be used in highly populated areas. That is in line with the agreement that was struck between Ukraine and the United States. And they will also keep track of where these munitions are fired uh, for later demining efforts. Uh, here's a, a bit from that interview earlier today. Take a listen. Have you used them already? And how much do you think
10: they're going to change the fight? Ні, ми тільки, отримали, ми тільки отримали, ми ще поки не використовуємо, але воно змінити може кардинально, тому що противники і ворог теж розуміє, що їх затриманням цього боєприпасу, то у нас з'явиться преимущество.
9: Now, Zane, one of the big reasons, or at least excuses, that the U.S. felt they could give them to Ukraine was that the Russians are using them already and have been doing so since the beginning of the war. In response to the U.S. announcement, uh, Russia did say that they would respond in kind if these cluster munitions are used. And we heard from the former president, Dmitry Medvedev, who's a bit of a a firebrand online. He's still a, a senior national security official. He said that Russia should now empty its arsenal of these inhumane weapons. Uh, but again, Russia has already been, been using uh, these cluster munitions. As for progress on the battlefield, General Tarnovsky says it is slow going. He says there has been some success, but what they're up against is mile upon mile, kilometer upon kilometer of, of uh, dense minefields uh, that are very hard to cross. Uh, and they're coming up against uh, fierce Russian attacks. But but he is rather optimistic. And again, he believes uh, that these cluster munitions could have a profound effect on this fight. Same.
0: Alexander Mark, about life for us there? Thank you so much. On Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden and G7 leaders rallied behind Ukraine at the NATO summit with a new joint declaration of support aimed at boosting the country's Uh, military capabilities security guarantees comes as data shows that the overall level of new pledges from countries that support ukraine has been trending downwards the ukraine support tracker shows that from february 25th to may 31st commitments to ukraine increased by 13 billion euros uh, to about 165 billion euros however there has been an increasing trend towards military aid rather than financial assistance. The tracker shows that in the beginning of the year, over half of the newly pledged aid was military in nature. Joining us live now is Christoph Trebesh. He is head of the team that produces the Ukraine support tracker and a professor of macroeconomics at Kiel University. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Christoph. So it's, it's one thing for a country to promise aid to Ukraine or to make some kind of pledge. It's another thing to actually deliver exactly what you have promised, no less. Um, Just explain to us where the gaps are in terms of what Ukraine has been given and what they have been promised.
10: Well, there's a gap across all areas, financial, military, humanitarian, between commitments and actual deliveries. Um, We show in particular that for Western uh, promises uh, are often take longer to to arrive. So only about 50 percent of weapons committed are actually now in Ukraine, um, and that gap is smaller for Eastern European countries uh, that deliver faster on average.
0: Um, the U.S. of course has been the most generous. Um, I mean, obviously, they are a fi- they have uh, uh, they're much they're at a much greater advantage financially just in terms of the GDP of of the United States. They have been the most generous. Um, Are there countries, though, that have the means to do more, but who aren't yet stepping up to the plate? What What have your research found on that front?
10: Well, Europe has been catching up in the past months. Um, All of Europe's aid taken together is about as much as as the U.S. aid package as a whole. Um, So there has been some catching up, but um, Europe is is a rich continent, uh, there are many powerful economies, and some of the countries um, have been doing quite, quite little. Uh, Spain, France, um, Germany has, has caught up, has n- not done much initially, but recently has committed more and more. But still, as a measure of GDP, they are still ranking somewhere in the middle. Uh, so these are rich countries. They could definitely do more. Uh, and if they have shortages in military uh, domains, they could do more financially. Uh, so uh, I do think there is still uh, a lot of things that could be done if the political will was there.
0: How sustainable is this level of support and this pace of support really um, over the long term?
10: Well, I mean, again, these are uh, powerful economies. Uh, We have uh, compared um, domestic spending priorities since the start of the wars to the spending and promises to Ukraine, and the gap's huge, right? We're talking about 20 times as much money pledged for energy subsidies to cope with the shock of the increased energy prices than what was given to Ukraine. So the money is there. Uh, it's just um, only a, sh- a fraction of the newly mobilized financial resources are uh, devoted to Ukraine, right? So, so um, it's, it's a matter of political decisions. Um, it's, uh, Europe has shown also during the Eurozone crisis, during COVID, it is able to mobilize much more uh, than what it has mobilized for Ukraine. So I wouldn't be worried about sustainability if the political will is there. It's a political decision.
0: Right, Christoph Trebesh, live for us there. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome back to First Move. The opening bell sounding on Wall Street. We have gone. Let's take a look here. Green arrows uh, across the board. After Wednesday's solid advance, stocks continue to get a boost from encouraging inflation data. New numbers show wholesale inflation at its lowest levels in almost three years. Strong earnings coming in from well-known blue chip companies as well. Delta Airlines and. Soft drink giant Pepsi are both reporting better than expected results. Delta, in fact, reporting record earnings in the second quarter. Both firms are also raising their profit guidance, too. Disney shares are higher as well on news that CEO Bob Iger has extended his contract another two years. He's now set to stay at the helm of Disney through 2026. Meanwhile, just released employment data shows that the U.S. jobs market is still strong. First time jobless claims falling unexpectedly uh, last week. Rahel Solomon joins us live now, coming in at 237,000, I I believe. This was an unexpected fall. Uh, What does this tell us, Rahel, about the overall health and resilience of the U.S. labor market?
11: Yeah, Zane, good to be with you. So this report is a the most real time look indicator of what's happening with the U.S. labor market. It's a weekly report at how many Americans are filing for unemployment benefits. And as you said, it unexpectedly declined. We were actually expecting unemployment claims to uh, rise a bit. So falling 12,000 to 237,000. Zane, if we go back a few more weeks and we can pull this up for you, you can see we've been sort of in this range in the 200s. To put that in perspective, that is still very low. We've been ticking up, but in historical standards, historical perspective, this is still very low. It is a sign that the U.S. labor market is still very strong. The caveat with weekly claims is that the data can be a bit noisy. It can be a bit volatile. So we don't take one week necessarily uh, and sort of extrapolate a, a, a large picture from that, but it does give you a better sense of what's happening on a real time week-to-week indicator. But saying this is the second report this morning that came in better than expected. I want to turn your attention very quickly to the producer price index, which you just mentioned there. That also coming in uh, cooler than expected, both on an annual basis and a monthly basis. On an annual basis, prices, and I should say producer price index, this is the and inflation index for the producer of goods and services. And so the idea is what you see in this report, we will tend to see in the consumer index report a few months down the line. But so prices declined both on an annual basis, and on a monthly basis. And we're getting to the point where some economists say we might be now looking at deflation, not just a, a decline in growth of prices, but actually deflation. I want to bring your attention to one quote that caught my eye this morning. This is coming from Gregory Dacko of Ernst Young, the chief economist, saying the underlying details in this report, report being PPI there, were encouraging and arguably more so than the CPI data. He goes on to list some of the factors here with base effects, i.e. favorable comparisons with last year's elevated food and energy prices subsiding Easing demand for goods and services, the pass through from softer housing price inflation and cooling wage growth should lead to faster disinflation. So all that to say, we might be looking at the, the end of the road here <laughs> sure, shortly so. when it comes to this record high inflation. And I'll My be gosh, the first that's one that's to that. say, <laughs> we'll have I'm back on. we I'm happy you're here. Yes. yes. <laughs>
0: All right, Well, always, always good to see you, Rahel Solomon. Thank Likewise. you so much. All right, Elon Musk has Tesla, SpaceX and Twitter on his resume. Now he's adding a new company uh, and its focus is artificial intelligence. It's called XAI. The billionaire says the company's goal is to understand the true nature of the universe. And he says it will work closely with his other companies, too. Musk was an early backer of OpenAI, which created the groundbreaking chat GPT, but later criticized it for adding safeguards designed to prevent offensive responses being generated. He also joined other tech leaders in calling for a pause in AI development to assess the dangers it could pose to humanity. Uh, Claire Duffy joins us live now. So Claire, Elon Musk basically saying that The goal of this latest venture is to, quote unquote, understand the true nature of the universe. He's also referring it to a a truth telling AI version. Um, just, Just walk us through what more we know about this brand new AI venture by Elon Musk.
12: Yeah, Zane, I mean, this is a situation where I have many more questions than answers at this point. But what we do know is Elon Musk has announced the creation of this new company. It's not clear exactly how AI will help him understand the true nature of the universe, but he plans to hold a Twitter Spaces event tomorrow to give more details about this company. I'll be looking forward to listening to that. He will be running this company along with a team of about a dozen research scientists from places like Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, all of whom I will say appear to be men. And you know it's interesting, Musk has sort of waffled back and forth in terms of his stance on AI. On one hand, he has talked for a while about wanting to create a competitor to ChatGPT, which he has criticized, in his words, as being too woke. But he's also talked about the fact that AI could cause humanity destruction, civilization destruction. That's something that he said in an interview a couple of months ago. And he signed on to this open letter calling for a six-month pause in AI development, which, apparently, he no longer believes. Or, Zane, he just wants to be the one in charge of building it.
0: It is so hard to keep up with Elon Musk. So many different things said back and forth. It's hard. I'm, my head is spinning already. Claire this Duffy. is the
12: sixth <laughs> company that he'll be, he'll be involved in running in. I mean, he's got so much going on right now.
0: Claire Duffy, live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, still to come. After the break, taking the heat out of concrete, new ways to mitigate global warming. And it starts from the ground up. That's story next. right we are tracking several extreme weather events around the world starting with a heat wave in italy which is being blamed for the death of a road construction worker this week while authorities in rome say several tourists collapsed from heat stroke it's also actually expected to get even hotter on friday uh, just after 3 a.m in phoenix arizona and temperatures there already reached 36 celsius the city has endured 12 straight days of brutally hot temperatures above 42 degrees Celsius. And in India, around 30,000 people have been moved from their homes after Delhi's Yamauna River exceeded its highest flood level, a government official describing it as an unprecedented situation. Let's turn now to ways uh, to mitigate harmful air pollution, which heats up our planet. The world relies on concrete for construction and road building. The journal Nature estimates over 33 billion tons of concrete are used every single year. According to one estimate in 2016, concrete accounted for 7% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide, mainly in the production of cement, the glue that holds concrete together. This is where carbon built comes in the company wants to partner with existing producers and retrofit their production plants they say their technology can cut the carbon footprint by between 70 and 100 percent with costs recouped within three to five years one plant In Arizona is already making the products. Uh, Rahul Shendure is the CEO of Carbon Built and joins us live now. Rahul, thank you so much uh, for being with us. So essentially, as I understand it, this sort of concrete alternative is lower costs, it costs less, and also it essentially removes carbon emissions from the atmosphere. Just explain to us how this technology actually works.
4: Uh, Thanks Zane. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your viewers today. So uh, you you know, gave a a great summary there at the start. So in terms of how it works, uh, there's two basic steps. First, we replace the the high carbon uh, cement, uh, concrete's glue, as you said, with uh, low carbon materials. And then we activate or cure these materials with carbon dioxide, which ends up being permanently stored in the concrete. Uh, In order to do this, we have to put a little bit of new equipment at the plant. Uh, But together, these two steps result in a 70 to 100 percent reduction in carbon footprint. Uh, We call that ultra low carbon concrete. And very importantly, as you said, it doesn't cost more. It performs the same way. And uh, it's available uh, today at our first retrofit in Alabama.
0: I mean, the technology sounds pretty significant. Just explain to us how you think this will revolutionize Construction, especially given the benefits uh, for the atmosphere?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing for us is, is less about the details of the technology and the fact that uh, we're able to do this with no price premium. Our producers don't have to charge a price premium to their customers. And really, you know, I've been working in climate tech and different, different verticals for over 20 years. Um, it's very rare to find a combination of, uh, economic benefit, and significant climate benefit uh, uh, from from the get-go. And that's what got me enthusiastic when I uh, found this technology and uh, what makes me so bullish about our uh, ability to make a, uh, an impact both in terms of industry transformation and climate impact in the near term.
0: So how hard has it been to actually get uh, companies to actually sign up uh, for these sorts of retrofits?
4: Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a conservative industry, right? So it's not uh, unlike tech uh, or medicine. It's not one that adopts new technologies quickly. So, um, you know, the the work on this started uh, about a decade ago um, at at, uh, UCLA. And it was in uh, 2019, 2020, where uh, thanks to the help from the Department of Energy, we were able to pilot uh, the technology and show that it could uh, uh, work and, and deliver products that met the same uh, performance requirements. Um, and, uh, you know, it starts with having the first plan out there that others can come see and and uh, uh, see that it's working. So this is, an, you know, the, the milestone we reached back in May, turning our first plan on is is huge for that process of, of convincing uh, new customers. I will say uh, uh, that uh, right now our customer pipeline is uh, more than we can handle. We're working with uh, concrete producers that are, you know, from small ones to, to very large ones. And this this combination of economic benefits where they're not having to sacrifice profits or mm-hmm. charge a premium in order to get the sustainability benefits, you know, in combination with everyone realizing what's happening in the world around us. I mean, you talked about uh, these uh, events happening around the world, which uh, are, are tough to ignore, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, you combine those together, and uh, we are seeing uh, customers move on this. The other piece that I think is critical is that we're working in a product segment where the products can be tested right at the factory gate. So these questions of, you know, does the product work? Will it be good enough? Uh, can be tested long before the, the product ends up going to customers.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Also, I think another important, I wouldn't say hurdle, but another important goal I imagine, would be broad adaptation because there are some parts of the United States that are open to sustainability practices and other parts that are not so open. And so I imagine that a goal of yours would be um, luring in or reining in a huge number of uh, companies. And the goal would be broad adaptation across various parts of the U.S. But Rahul Shendre, we have to leave it there, CEO of Carbon Build. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. All right. Coming up here on First Move, North Korea making headlines with its most powerful weapon and its most powerful woman. That story next. North Korea is hailing its latest missile tests as the longest one it's ever flown. State media reports the Hwasong-18 intercontinental ballistic missile flew for 74 minutes on Wednesday before crashing down in the waters near Japan. The solid fuel ICBM has been called the North's most powerful nuclear weapon, but it's unclear if it could actually deliver a nuclear payload. State media says leader Kim Jong-un personally guided the launch just days after his powerful sister issued some serious threats. CNN's Will Ripley
13: explains. A menacing milestone for North Korea's missile program, Pyongyang's latest ICBM launch, breaking its own record for the longest ever missile flight. A staggering 74 minutes hurtling high above the Earth at supersonic speed, hitting 6,000 kilometers before splashing down in the sea. The massive missile's potential striking range, the entire U.S. mainland, and most of the world. Pyongyang's most provocative launch in months, coinciding with this NATO summit in Lithuania. Quickly condemned by Japan as an unacceptable threat to regional stability. South Korea's military ready to overwhelmingly respond. The ICBM, a crown jewel in leader Kim Jong-un's nuclear arsenal, protecting the power, fortune, and future of the ruling Kim family. His young daughter, Kim Joo-ae, often appearing alongside her dad. Barely 10 years old, the rising star of a state propaganda campaign. Carefully crafted by Kim's younger sister, the mastermind of the Kim family brand. The leader's loyal confidant, trusted advisor, and perhaps the most powerful woman in North Korea.
7: She is the number two. Well, that is for sure. But actually, she is a very smart lady, and she actually... Wu knows that her position is secure only when her brother is secure.
13: Just five years ago, very few people knew of Kim Yo-jong. She stepped onto South Korean soil, the first member of North Korea's ruling family to cross the DMZ. She carried a message of peace from Pyongyang. North Korean athletes and cheer squads got a warm welcome at the 2018 Winter Olympics. She rose to fame as a fixture at her brother's side, Standing silently behind Kim as he met with former President Trump, that brief period of diplomacy feels like a distant memory. The silent sister now a loud voice of defiance, issuing fiery statements on state media, often laced with crude language. This week, she threatened to shoot down U.S. spy planes, accusing them without evidence of entering North Korean territory. Warning, in case of repeated illegal intrusions, the U.S. forces will experience a very critical flight. Past actions proved she's not all talk. In 2020, a dispute with South Korea ended with a bang. Kim ordered the demolition of a joint liaison office at the border, turning diplomatic dreams into a pile of rubble. She ordered the demolition of a building partially because she was angry that South Korea wasn't doing enough to stop activists from sending propaganda leaflets in balloons to the North. And she's accusing the U.S. and South Korea of having the most hostile and aggressive behavior, calling the South Korean president a fool. And those two countries now strengthening their military alliance, which means there could be even stronger responses from North Korea. And the second most powerful person in North Korea, Kim Yo-jong. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei. All
0: right. And finally, here on First Move, surfers are used to doing battles with the waves. But in Santa Cruz, California, they're contending with a sea otter who seems intent, look at that, intent on damaging and stealing surfboards. A video here shows a bit of a tussle in progress with the sea otter trying to get on that surfboard. Uh, and uh, an expert told the New York Times, it's not normal to see these kinds of interactions, but that doesn't mean they never happen. A sign has been put up to warn surfers and swimmers, enter the water at your own risk. Authorities say that they will try to rehome the otter uh, because of the threat to public safety. All right, that is it for the show. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World. Connect World is up next. You're watching CNN.